if you are practicing tasawwuf as well the the various different things to do with the adhkar and everything if i am getting up in the morning and doing my adhkar if i'm doing my adhkar and i have the right idea of what tasawwuf is throughout the day and then i study hadith i'm going to get a lot more out of it because hadiths are the word of rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam quran is the words of allah if I have just managed to open up my heart to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and become close to Prophet through tasawwuf, then that means I'm going to benefit more from my Quran and Sunnah. That's what, that's what tasawwuf does. Tasawwuf just adds. Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Wa salatu wa salamu ala Sayyidina Muhammad. وعلى آله وصحبه وبارك وسلم تسليما كثيرا إلى يوم الدين أما بعد قال الله تعالى في القرآن المجيد والفرقان الحميد ولكن كونوا ربانيين بما كنتم تعلمون الكتاب وبما كنتم تدرسون وقال تعالى والذين جاهدوا فينا لنهدينهم سبولنا so uh, my session is regarding answering criticisms to tasawwuf and i don't want to just list criticisms here and then mention them because they may actually not be criticisms that you have in mind or that you may have even heard and then we're just going to be opening up a can of worms for maybe no reason and wasting our time so firstly just to uh, add on just a few points i mean there was a totally thorough discussion uh, by our uh, dear friend Ustaz Abul Aliyah so I don't need to repeat much at all and I don't want to do that I'm just going to mention a few things because Tasawwuf, Sufism, whatever name you want to call it this whole practice of trying to be better believers and trying to reach Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that's essentially what it is just trying to be better believers and trying to reach Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that's the way I look at what Tasawwuf is Fiqh is similar except that that relates more to very absolute uh, halal and harams and the sawf just relates to how better to observe that halal and haram so fiqh and jurisprudence it's about this is halal this is makruh this is discouraged this is reprehensible uh, this is absolutely mandatory and a pillar and this one is recommended it's better if you do it but it's okay if you don't do it so what does the sawf do it just makes you do whatever is necessary or preferable in a better way, a deeper way, in a more fulfilling way. And it just makes it easier to avoid what's wrong and what's haram. So it works in tandem with all of these things. So then that was with fiqh. That's the way tasawwuf works with jurisprudence. The way tasawwuf works with the belief system of what we need to believe about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala about the Prophet ﷺ, about the hereafter, it just makes it more realistic and refined. So in Aqidah, we know that Allah is one. And that's an absolute basic Aqidah. We have to declare that Allah is one after knowing that He is one and so on. What the Sawuf does is it gives you the various different methodologies to really, really in our life, recognize in practice that Allah is one and declare that. So to do Tawheed all the time. When we're making dua, it sorts out our dua so that we're actually doing tawheed in our dua. We're actually Im 
implementing the Tawheed in our Dua. We're implementing Tawheed in our Salat. So it enhances the practice of it. So all Tasawwuf does is that it takes every science and it makes it deeper and more realistic and beneficial and practical. Look at Ilmul Hadith, Ilmul Tafsir, same thing. If you are practicing Tasawwuf as well, the, the various different things to do with the Adhkar and everything, if I am getting up in the morning and doing my Adhkar, if I'm doing my Adhkar and I have the right idea of what Tasawwuf is throughout the day, and then I study Hadith, I'm going to get a lot more out of it. Because hadiths are the word of Rasulullah sallallahu Quran is the words of Allah. If I have just managed to open up my heart to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and become close to the Prophet sallallahu through tasawwuf, then that means I'm going to benefit more from my Quran and sunnah. That's what, that's what tasawwuf does. Tasawwuf just adds. It's, that's, that's why in the hadith that was mentioned earlier, the hadith of Jibreel alayhi salam, there was the idea about Ihsan. What is Ihsan, Ya Rasulullah? And the Prophet ﷺ responded by saying, it's that you worship Allah as though you see Him. You can't really see Allah. But yes, you can worship as though you see Him. As though you see Him means because Allah is part of everything, behind everything, administering everything. He's not absent anywhere. It's just that we make him absent because we focus on other things. So if we get to this level of being able to practice the soul by doing lots of dhikr and so on, then we'll actually start doing that. So that's why it's just the beautification of the faith. It's a perfection beautification of it. It's adorning the faith. That's what the soul is. Now, how is this done? Uh, scholars throughout history have figured out ways to do this because it's different practices. Following the Sharia, avoiding the Haram, that's Sharia, that you have to do that anyway. But what the ulama have figured out is that if you do this and if you do that, it will help you do, it will help you observe the Sharia. So they've provided, that they've provided different ideas, said that if you sit and do dhikr for this long or focus on this particular type of dhikr sitting in this particular way, that will penetrate your heart more. To do dhikr is the sunnah. They just show you how to do the dhikr. And then they just open up for us. For example, imagine this. A lot of people think that dhikr is something formal that you do. I must sit down. Let me find a clean place to sit down where nobody's going to bother me. Or if I'm traveling in a train or a bus or whatever, I'm going to take my tasbih and do dhikr. But what about when you actually start your job? You get to your job and you start working. Is there no more dhikr afterwards? Is there no more dhikr when you're eating? Is there no dhikr when you're playing? Can you not remember Allah then? Is Allah to be remembered only when you sit down to particularly do it? So for example, uh, one of the great uh, so-called Sufis of the past, uh, Bahauddin Naqshband, he came up with this idea that Dast Bakar Dil Bayar, it's a Persian term, he's from Uzbekistan, Turkic uh, background, but Persian was the language, the lingua franca of the time. He said, what we're trying to achieve through all of this dhikr and everything is that my hand is occupied with the work, so I'm typing away, or my tongue is telling a joke, or we're having a banter about something. 
but my heart is always with Allah. That's an amazing idea. I mean, what has the soul just done for you there? It's just brought Allah closer to you. You believed in the oneness of Allah, but now you really understand who Allah is and you're really connecting to Allah. If you don't even know that, that when we're sitting down and having a little permissible banter, telling a few jokes, just reminiscing over past times, you know, when we were in school together, madrasa together, or when we used to work together in the London underground or wherever people, uh, you know, work. In the middle of that, you're still discussing, you're remembering Allah. He's keeping you grounded. That thought, that idea is keeping you focused so you don't go overboard. Subhanallah. And it's not just for that. It's just that you can't help but to remember Allah because you've made yourself so attached to Him. Imagine you've got an issue, some big issue. Let's just say that there's something you know you're going to achieve very soon. It's coming. You've ordered it. Right? It's going to come very soon. You're very excited about it. Right? You're very excited about it. It's going to take a week to come. Every now and then you're going to start remembering it. Oh, it's going to come. Looking forward to it. Looking forward to it. Just about thinking about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala like that. He said another thing. He said, Khalwat dar anjuman. That's a really interesting idea. Again, another Persian term. He said, You might be among lots of people, but you have your own solitude with Allah. It doesn't matter what people are saying. That's why the way Hassan Basri rahimahullah he describes the earlier generation in the Sahaba. He said that. These are people that these are the people with Iman, Al Mu'min. He said they are the people, if they're sitting with people who are distracted, they are going to be of the Dhakir. They are going to be the ones who are still in remembrance of Allah. So you might be sitting among people playing football, uh, sorry, watching football and getting really excited. They don't care about Allah at that point. Uh, well, actually, I, I saw a clip about some Moroccan woman, I don't know, doing Taweez and all sorts, the Rukia and all sorts, when Morocco was... <laughs> she is doing Dua and, you know, against, I don't know what team it was. So, subhanAllah. That's the modern tasawwuf, I don't know what that is. SubhanAllah. And then they actually won, Morocco won. <laughs> Subhanallah. By the way, uh, Morocco has a lot of Sufis. If you go to Fez and Marrakesh, there's lots of Khanqas of various different tariqas. Traditionally, it's been a very Sufi place until the last 1700 years when a new fitna came in and tried to eradicate all of that. So that's the idea of it. He says, you're among people who are distracted, but while you may be part of that distracted state, apparently, you're remembering Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then, he says, وَإِذَا جَلَسَ مَعَ الذَّاكِرِينَ كُتِبَ مِنَ الْمُسْتَغْفِرِينَ And if you're sitting among people who are remembering Allah, you're doing istighfar. You're always on a higher level. Why are you doing istighfar when people are doing dhikr? Just so you don't show off. I'm sitting among these dhaakireen. I'm I'm there. I'm there. It's like, astaghfirullah, a'udhu billah. This is a shukr of Allah that we are sitting here today. When all of these matches are going on, really it's a shukr that we're sitting here today. Uh, try to do this program tomorrow, we'll see. Uh, the reason I say is I didn't know about these. So I was supposed to do a program and it was supposed to be, I don't know when, was it tonight? Tonight. I said, no, no, we can't do it tonight. We'll have to do it tomorrow. So we've shifted it to tomorrow. Right. 
So, كتب من الذاكين, كتب من المستغفرين, وهكذا كان أصحاب النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم. He says, this is exactly how the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم's companions were. الأول فالأول حتى لحقوا بالله عز وجل. One after the other until they met with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That is really what tasawuf is. Anything wrong with that? You don't have to call it that name, but that's exactly what it is. Initially, they used to call it Zuhd. That's why you don't really hear about Sufis of the earliest generations. Nobody said to a Sahabi, he's a Sufi. Or, you know, because it just wasn't the term used. Uh, even the generation of the Tabi'een and Tab'ud Tabi'een. Recently, uh, Turath has just published Abdullah ibn al-Mubarak, Rahimahullah, subhanAllah, that name is just awesome. And the person was awesome and his... MashaAllah, his knowledge was awesome. His Kitab al-Zuhd. Kitab al-Zuhd. That's what it was initially referred to. All the earlier they called Zahideen. Kana Zahid, Kana Zahidan, Kana Zahidan. What's a Zahid? Zahid means abstinence from the world, focused on the hereafter. It doesn't mean that they lived in huts. Or they might have, but they didn't live in caves and didn't use anything. No, they were in the world, but their focus was the hereafter. They were not distracted individuals by the world. Their main focus was that. The Sahaba were all in that sense. Some were more than others. Abu Dharr was considered to be more than others. right? Sometimes to an extreme level maybe. And that's why the other Sahaba, uh, they, he would give them fatwa sometimes. That you can't have any more than your one day's sustenance. You can't have anything for tomorrow in your fridge, for example. You know, if I'm... Uh, if I'm translating his opinion correctly. That's essentially what the Sawf is. So he was called Zuhud before, usually. That's why all the books are Zuhud, Zuhud. Then after that, it changed to love for a, for a while. That It's about love, focus on the love of Allah. The Zahids also had love for Allah, but now he just the, the whole focus became, you need to love Allah. Now, loving Allah meant obviously abstaining from haram as well. Doing halal, doing dhikr, and so on. Same thing, but it's just the focus. And then after that, eventually it became known as Tasawuf, Tazkiyah, Ihsan, and, and so on. And that's, what, that's the legacy we've, we've received. That's essentially what it is. That's, that's what it is. Um, if you go around the whole world, the whole world was Sufi. Because it was Islam, that's what it was. It's only the last hundred years, they say, that there were two blows to this. Number one, by the colonizers, especially in Turkey. Turkey was, mashallah, Sufi. In fact, until now, that's probably the only... One of the only countries in the world where you go, they don't just ask which madhab are you, they ask which tariqah you're in. They still do, some of them. Right? Nowhere else like they're going to say, brother, which tariqah are you in tasawuf? They say which madhab you might be if, they, you know, if they're interested in that. But Turkey still has that because they've had that tradition. But then uh, with Ataturk and also, they found that the Sufis were very well organized. Because you know, you have a sheikh with thousands of followers. He just has to give the command and, you know, there you go, you know. So they're very scared about that. Uh, same kind of things you happen in Nigeria. Much of the Islam that spread in Nigeria was through Tasawuf. Likewise in India, Mu'inuddin Chishti rahimahullah. We don't ascribe every, Islam, every bit of Islam to him, but thousands, hundreds of thousands of people became Muslim at his hands. Likewise, Ahmed bin Fudi, Sheikh Ahmed, Ahmed Dan Fodio, they call him. In Nigeria, literally, it's be hundreds of thousands of people becoming Muslim on his hands. Nigeria has a lot of tasawuf. I've been to a khanka, for example, in uh, Mauritania. I've been to khanqas in uh, the next country, Senegal. I've been to khanqas 
in Morocco. There, I've not been to Algeria, but Tilimsan had a huge amount of awliya and khanqas there. India, Pakistan has a number of them. Medina, Munawwara, Makkah, Mukarrama. Now they're all underground, but before there used to be lots of khanqas there. Likewise, in Jerusalem, people used to go there for a retreat. Now let me explain to you how that comes into it. Where does this khanqa business come into it? You see, a lot of people, they say tasawuf. So this is what they say. Tasawuf is uh, their grave worshippers. That's a, that's a really big criticism and that's a very strong criticism and it's a very effective one. As soon as you, you know, somebody he gets uh, drawn into Tasawuf, somebody's going to come along and say, you know, Sufis, they're grave worshippers. Now nobody wants to be a grave worshipper. Right? That, that's not really something anybody wants to be. Right? And the overwhelming majority of Muslims are not grave worshippers at all. Right? Muslims aren't grave worshippers, but this is a slur, it's a swear word. Right? In fact, forget um, Sufis, they, they say Deobandis are grave worshippers. Have you ever seen a Deobandi grave worshipper? And the other person doesn't really know, so they just like, oh, okay, here you go. I, don't, I don't want to be with these guys, you guys are grave worshippers. Like, what, what kind of grave worship are you talking about? I've never been worshipping in a grave. It, it's this constant thing, it's constant, it's just totally unacademic. And it's just a swear word. Unfortunately, everybody does this kind of stuff. They just find like the worst possible swear that you can try to apply. Nobody's going to check it. Right? Nobody checks the news. You know, unless somebody tells you otherwise. This is the problem. Most people are sheep. They just listen to whatever it is. Or they're grave worshippers. Right? Kuburis. Right? As though, you know, let's get, you know, I mean, you go to a grave, you hardly see anybody there. You know, the, the, the poor Amwa, they'd love to have somebody to come and read something, but you know, there's, sometimes on a Sunday you might have a few people. Yes, there are people who are Sufis who do stuff at graves, some, but the majority don't. Right? Um, there are some that do some dancing, there are that do some other strange things, there are a few. And uh, Tasawuf is very dynamic, so it is definitely open to abuse. It's definitely open to abuse. So there's definitely charlatans, imposters, degenerated ones, exotic ones, weird ones, no doubt. But the good Tasawuf is not like that. And somebody generally asks, which tariqah is the best that doesn't have any deviance? It's very difficult to say because unfortunately many tariqahs, or I'm going to say most tariqahs, have the good and bad among them. It just needs a guy who was a Sufi to have messed up. He still has uh, he still has the connection from before. The Sheikh has died, so he can't disown him anymore. And his fellow colleagues, they the, the, if they try to disown him, he just calls them jealous. So that's how some evil can creep into this. That's how it is. I don't I don't want to get into that too much, but there can be a problem like this. Because there's no overarching body. Like for example, in, in England, if you're a lawyer, then you have to be a member of the bar, you can be thrown out of the bar and so on. Right? There's a constant. In fact, forget law. If you're a gas safe guy, every five years or something, you have to go and get a new certificate. So that they just manage to get rid of all of the rogue guys who just do jobs for nothing. Do you understand what I mean? Unfortunately, there's nothing like that for the soul. That's the That's a problem in that sense. But what are you going to do about it? So that's why we have to be careful who we find. 
But the benefit of that is amazing. Now, let me give you an idea of what actually happens in a khanqa. So, I've been to the khanqa in Tanabawan. Tanabawan was amazing because the person who had established that originally was Haji Imdadullah and maybe somebody before him. And then he had to go to Makkah Mukarramah because of the British problems. So, that khanqa after Haji Imdadullah rahimahullah, uh, had become kind of uh, neglected and desolate and empty. He sent one of his students, Hakim al Shabali Tanwi, who was actually originally from there, he says, you need to go and revive that. And did he revive it, subhanAllah. And that man was an individual that even today, uh, there, there is a Maulana there, Maulana Hudhaifa, his name is a young man. He gives you a tour of the place and he really brings it all back for you. So he shows you the masjid, right? He shows you upstairs, that's where the rooms were. And he says, that one, Mufti Shafi Usmani used to be in that room, right? And Mufti so-and-so, all the big khulafat, that was their room and it, that was his room and there they would come. And then on the side, there are two small rooms. They're called Khalwadgah. That's a Persian term, Khalwadgah, which you use in Urdu as well. Essentially, a room for solitude. It's literally the size of a grave. And that is where they would sit. Hajim Dadullah is there and I think Hafiz Damin Shaheeds is there. And I remember I saw the original that had not been, that was amazing. But then I think it became quite bad uh, because it's been over a hundred years. So they decided to renovate it and now it doesn't look, it looks too, too new. But amazing, you could literally like a space of a grave. It's a room, close the door. That's where you sit and you do your dhikr. Because the Sufis in their khanka had certain exercises. A khanka they call a retreat. It's, you can imagine it's like a clinic or a retreat that you go there for 10 days, 15 days, 20 days, 40 days or whatever. And they give you certain adhkar to do in that time. It's like a crash course that they would give you to do. For example, at that time, Qari Tayyab, rahimahullah, who was the principal of Darulum Deuban, one of you know the biggest madrasa in India, right? And he's the principal of that. So you can imagine where he was in the sight of everybody and his position. He went there to learn. What are you going there to learn? You're going there to learn what I said in the beginning. You're going there to learn pure tawheed, how to put it in practice. I believe this, I teach this, but how do I put it in practice? How do I get my nafs to obey? How do I get my limbs to obey? How do I get my aql and my intelligence to feel and believe in this in the way that it will now empower everything? So how do I get my intelligence, my heart and my nafs to all be on the same page of the true believer? Very difficult to do that in the outside world because there's just too many pressures and too many distractions and attractions. That's why it's a good idea to do a retreat. Imagine sitting in a masjid for 40 days or in a khanqa for 40 days where you've got a regimen that this time you have to wake up and do dhikr. This time you have, and you only, you know, sometimes they also minimize the food. Not always. Sometimes they minimize the food because food plays a part. So they made us do struggles. That was the idea of it. So what he told Qari Tayyib Sahib to do, Hazrat Mawlana Tanwi Rahmatullahi is I want you to do something very simple, just straighten everybody's slippers. You know, maybe they didn't have these proper shoe racks at that time in that place. So they said, just straighten everybody's shoes. I mean, people just come in, they just, their shoes, chappal, 
their slippers are all over the place just see karte roho like just straighten them i mean he is the principle of darlum deoban so and he had a bit of uh, refinement in him like he's a bit sensitive about touching dirty stuff you know, as most people do so he would only touch the nicer shoes or slippers monatan we saw that and he made him do the other ones and he said when i did that all the ego went from my heart that i am originally just a simple person see all of these things outside a bit of money that you get the house you may have the job you may have the handsomeness you may have or whatever else that you have it distracts us it gives us this false sense of security of independence so this just brings you back to be connected to Allah now when you stay there for that long and then you come out you're just renewed person then you have to carry on doing certain adhkar it's never going to be the same as it is in a khanqa but that's the way it was then I was taken from there to a distance away where you have to it takes it's like 10-15 minutes walk he had a, that was on the outskirts of the village at that time now they've built a big madrasa there and everything and there was another building he said that for some of the murids for some of the students patients that used to come in jinki isla those who could not be reformed there in the main complex they would be sent here for 40 days given a small amount of food and they just had to do certain adhkar and so on and they couldn't meet anybody else that just helps to just break all this all this attachment to the world i don't know of any place that still does this kind of stuff right as much because people can't just deal with it and there's distractions in one thing you'll have to do is take your phone away right that would be absolutely necessary because that's where a lot of the issues come that's what they used to do. You sit and do this much adhkar. I've been to the Khanka of Raipur and what an amazing place it is. In the middle of some mango groves, totally serene. Like I wish I could stay there. Like I, You go there, you, your heart just feels a longing that I would love to be here. I was studying in Saharanpur at the time. So I was in Madrasa, so I couldn't be here. But you could tell that whoever... And, I, and I'm interesting, I met a brother there from England from Preston. And he was there just doing dhikr with the shaykh for I don't know how many months. That sometimes you do that as a clinic or a retreat. And of course, if you, I mean, if, if you, most people aren't going to stay there forever, are they? But that's what you would do. So the idea is that you learn this so that each time you learn more and you build yourself, you go out in the world and you just got more fortitude. Yeah, you lose a bit. Just like in Ramadan, we're very good. And then after that, we lose a bit of it and we need another Ramadan. That's what the purpose of these Khan Khans was. And they had them all over the world. They had them throughout the world. Just had to have a good shake. They, they all had different amounts of effect depending on how powerful the shake was and his system was. Some shakes were less rigid, were less strict, and some were very strict. So it depends on how, who you would get along with. That's what it was. That's how it all started. So, Maulana Tanwi, I mean, if you, if you want to understand, I mean, this book, um, he explains in the beginning, uh, this whole first section of the book is, what is the sawf? What is the need for it? And then he reduces the sawf essentially is struggle to 
free yourself from the distractions of the world and to focus on Allah. This does not mean giving up the world. You, know, you have many Sufis who are very wealthy. So it's not about giving up the world. It's just that you're not allowing the world to get into your heart. And you're just not obsessed by it. Even though it's coming to you. If the world comes to you, you can't stop it. But you're just using it in the right way. And your focus is always Allah. Regardless of what's going on, your focus is always Allah. That's what you're constantly trying to do. So in here he talks about the pledge. What's all this about the pledge then? You have to give yourself to someone or pledge to somebody. That the pledge idea comes from the sunnah because the Prophet used to take pledge from people. He used to take the first pledge was when people would become Muslim. So you take a pledge. So right now we don't necessarily take a pledge from new Muslims, do we? We just make them read shahada. But he would take a pledge. There was pledge for jihad as well. And then there was pledge for tawbah. To revive a tawbah. And this is what Shaykh Abdul Qadir Jilani, the great Hanbali scholar of Baghdad, he kind of revived this. So then many people after him started getting people to take the pledge. Why? He said that if people come to me and informally I'm teaching them, that's one thing. But if they sign a form that I am their teacher, then that's a bit more formalized, isn't it? So that's the same as taking the pledge. So I've taken a pledge with this guy. So I'm committed to you, you're committed to me. So it becomes a relationship and a responsibility in that sense. Then he discusses who is the right shaykh. And he gives a number of criteria. If you read that criteria, you'd hardly find somebody who meets all of that criteria. But you do, you, you basically do with the best you get. Because that's the kind of world we're living in. right? You do the best that you get. Right? So that's the whole idea of it. And as I said, you know, the, the simple thing is that yes, there's been some bad and there are some bad um, sheep in the family here. And because of that, some people have just gone overboard and they're very loud. They're a minority, but they're very loud online. So every time you do a search for Tasawwuf, what are you going to find is criticisms with Tasawwuf. The people who were Sufis, they were in their khankas, it looks like, and not really worried about what anybody did. This was a problem. But now, mashallah, when you start searching online, you're going to find a lot more about Tasawwuf. There's still a lot more work to be done. So don't think of it as some kind of uh, strange idea. It's a very, very organic idea. It's just about emphasizing the deen. That's all it is, as long as you find the right sheikh to do it with. And you must find a sheikh who is well-rounded. Who, uh, the best of the sheikhs are those who have studied the Quran and Sunnah in depth. Who are ulama. Not to say that you can't have a sheikh who has not studied them in depth. As long as he understands them sufficiently well. Because without that, there is no tasawwuf. The greatest of the like Junaid al-Baghdadi and all these, Rahimahullah, they said, if anything goes against the Sharia, you can call it Tasawwuf or whatever you want to call it, it won't be Tasawwuf because Tasawwuf essentially is just the Quran and Sunnah and the Fiqh in its full glory. That's what it is. So let me, let me stop here. Uh, the point of a lecture is to encourage people to act, to get further, an inspiration, an encouragement, persuasion. The next step is to actually start learning seriously, to read books, to take on a subject of Islam and to understand all the subjects of Islam, at least at their basic level, so that we can become more aware of what our deen wants from us. Uh, and that's why we started uh, Rayyan courses, so that uh, you can actually take organized lectures uh, on demand whenever you have free time, especially, for example, the Islamic Essentials 
uh, course that we have on there, the Islamic Essentials Certificate, which you take 20 short modules. And at the end of that, inshallah, you will have gotten the, the basics of uh, most of the most important topics in Islam, and you'll feel a lot more confident. You don't have to leave lectures behind. You can continue to, leave, uh, you know, to listen to lectures, but you need to have this more sustained study as well. Jazakallah khairan. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.